On Monday, the 19th of October, next Monday, in this room at 6 o'clock, Tanya Schmaller speaks on decorated papers generally and on the collection of decorated papers that she and her late husband, Hans Schmaller, have assembled over the years. And on Monday, the 26th of October, David Vesey, Bodley's librarian, speaks on the pleasures and perils of being Bodley's librarian. And that ends the delights for the month of October, except for tonight's. John Dreyfus is the most frequent lecturer to Friends of the Book Arts Press audiences over the past 10 years for a reason which will no doubt become obvious to those of you who don't know why by the time you've heard his lecture. He has the unusual distinction of being the only honorary printer of the Book Arts Press and has an apron to prove it. He's an old friend of Columbia, and we're very glad to have him here. He speaks tonight on a spectacular view of the advent of printing. John Dreyfus. Thank you very much, Terry. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I've been attending a conference in this city since um, Friday evening, and I've been absolutely battered by people talking at me and I feel a great sympathy for you because you're going to have a tough lecture tonight, despite what Terry's said. Some of this is some of the densest stuff. I don't mean dense that you won't understand, but let me warn you, some of it is very uh, closely packed with facts. And the only um, real consolation is, uh, I can give you is this. I was reading a piece, a book about acting by Laurence Olivier, and he said, if you have the nerve... It's a very good thing to bore your audience to begin with because later on when you've got everything to shoot at them, they're so impressed. Well, now, in this, there are passages, when I warn you, you may get bored. In between, there are two sensational bouts of slides and we really get into a fast canter at the end. So if you begin at the end of a, a day like you've had um, to think you're fading and uh, your powers of absorbing what I'm saying are vanishing, don't worry, hang on. Well, now... The possibility of there having been some connection between the invention of spectacles and the advent of printing first occurred to me after reading a paper called Future Tendencies in Type Designs, written by Hermann Zapf of Darmstadt, who just arrived here yesterday. It was published in 1985 and was subtitled The Scientific Approach to Letterforms. Zapf wrote with the authority of a man who has been exceptionally prolific in creating handsome and successful typefaces, as well as teaching and practicing the art of calligraphy. And his paper ended with these words. We should never forget that the human eye is still the best critic and judge. Our eyes are not different at all from the eyes of 500 years ago of Gutenberg's time. How true, I thought, as I put down his paper. And then as I took off my spectacles, I looked at them and wondered whether readers in Gutenberg's time had such ready access to reliable and affordable spectacles as Zupf and our contemporaries. He and I, by the way, were both born in 1918, and like most people with normal vision, I began to use spectacles for reading when I was 45, while Zupf managed to work without them until his middle 50s. Now, hoping to satisfy my curiosity, I worked on the subject for a couple of days in the autumn 1985 during a visit to the Library of Congress. 
its staff and its computer quickly gave me some idea of the scale on which further research would be needed before I could even formulate the questions to which I'd need to find answers. Nevertheless, as a framework began to take shape in my mind, I decided the subject deserved deeper investigation for two reasons. First, I believe I have already assembled enough data to interest those bibliographers who approach their subject from the viewpoint encompassed by that phrase, histoire du livre, and not least by those who want to understand the reasons why books have been created in particular styles and used in particular ways. My second reason coincides with a statement made by Professor Vincent Illardi of the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in a paper published in 1976, to which I'll return later. Professor Illardi had this to say, and I quote, the early history of spectacles raises many questions that can only be answered by answered after historians of several disciplines, science and technology, economy and society, and art and costume have investigated more thoroughly its multifarious aspects. I must therefore ask you to accept that my paper will raise more problems than it solves, but after an attempt to summarize what little is known about the invention of spectacles, and after commenting on two batches of slides showing a few attractive and little-known examples of the early use of spectacles, I will present you with a few hypotheses and suggestions for further research. The printed version of this paper, by the way, will be published next year in the library, and in that there will be references to published sources, which I've found enlightening and I reckon to be reliable, but it won't have this wealth of color slides, which only you who take the trouble to turn up will enjoy. Now, an American historian, Professor Edward Rosen, thoroughly investigated Italian archives containing documents about the invention of spectacles. A meticulous account of his efforts and conclusions was published during 1956 in two issues of the American Journal of the History of Medicine. Rosen corrected a great many errors made by previous scholars. Some of these had come about through carelessness, but others had been introduced by tinkering with transcripts of documents, apparently in order to discredit claims to the invention from citizens of rival cities. Two surviving documents lead us to conclude that spectacles were invented around the year 1286. One of these documents consists of notes taken during a sermon at the church of Santa Maria Novella in Florence in February 1306. That sermon was given by a popular preacher named Friar Giordano, and we're lucky that notes were taken by a member of his congregation because it was the friar's habit to speak extemporaneously on a theme to which he'd given some thought. I was charmed to find that he started this way. He would say, you know, whenever I come and preach to you, I come with an idea of what I intend to say. Then I see you all out there, and something quite different comes to my mind. And on one day, he decided to talk about uh, inventions. Well, he became such a popular preacher that his sermons have survived in far more quantities than Savonarola's, and the one which concerns us today was given in 136, when he told his congregation, and this is the, what the member took down, according to that m member of the congregation, he said, it isn't yet 20 years since there was found the art of making eyeglasses, which make for good vision. 
one of the best arts and most necessary the world has. So short a time is it, there was invented a new art that never existed. And he went on, I've seen the man who first invented and created it, and I've talked to him. That was 136, so 1286. Further evidence about the invention is contained in an ancient chronicle of the Dominican monastery of St. Catherine in Pisa, which refers to Alessandro Spina, S-P-I-N-A. He was described, and I quote again, as a monk of most excellent character and acute mind. Whatever had been made, when he, Spina, saw it with his own eyes, he too knew how to make it. And when it happened that somebody else was the first to invent eyeglasses and was unwilling to communicate the invention to others, all by himself, he made them and good-naturedly shared them with everybody. So much for the documentary evidence. Professor Rosen affirmed that the inventor whose spectacles were copied by Spina was neither a Florentine nor a Dominican and probably not a cleric. Pisa has a better claim on the inventor than any other locality, and Professor Rosen came to the charitable conclusion that while a cloistered friar didn't have to worry about supporting himself, the unidentified layman inventor may have refused to reveal his method simply because he wanted to make a profit out of it. Be that as it may, both the good-natured monk and the profit-seeking inventor would have needed a good supply of lenses for about 20 years before the invention of spectacles, the idea that a segment of a sphere might be used to magnify an object placed beneath it had become fairly common knowledge. The idea had been expand, expounded by an Arabic optician known as Alhazen, who died in 1306. I'm sorry, who died in 1036. By 1266, a Latin translation of his treatise had been made, and... A year later, some of the matters he discussed were taken up by Roger Bacon, whose optical thesaurus recommended the use of a lens to help old people afflicted with weak eyesight. According to Professor Grafe, one of the most prolific writers on the history of spectacles, the Latin version of Alhazen's treatise was widely known in monasteries throughout Christendom. So, Fra Spina would probably have had little difficulty in mastering what was known at the time about the use of lenses or in finding another Dominican friar who could supply him with the necessary knowledge. There were, however, strict limits to such knowledge at that period because the subject of optics was still greatly influenced by superstition. One entrenched idea current at that time was that vision took place by means of the emission of a visual spirit which traveled from the eye to the object seen. So I entirely share Professor Ronke's belief that the idea of using lenses in spectacles to correct the effects of the onset of age for people with normal sight was, and I quote, a discovery made purely by chance by people who knew nothing about optics. Though a lack of evidence has led to many assumptions being made about the invention of spectacles, documents in Venetian archives leave no room for doubt that eyeglasses were made in that republic in 1301 and quite possibly a year earlier. Even before spectacles were invented, a guild of crystal workers had been formed in Venice, which had been the main center of the glass industry since about 1000 AD. 
Regulations for that guild specified which materials could be used for eyeglasses and made a distinction between crystal and glass, which I must now explain. Venice imported the transparent, colorless quartz known as rock crystal and fashioned it into a variety of objects. But Venice exported glass in various forms. As the word crystal is used nowadays to mean very clear, colorless glass, it's all the more important to appreciate what the word signified in the 13th and 14th centuries. Regulations promulgated in 1284 relating to the Venetian Guild of Crystal Workers forbade any member to work colorless glass and then pass it off as crystal. Work in crystal had to be sold as crystal and work in glass as glass. A supplementary supplementary rule of April 1300 gave several examples of articles made of colorless glass which were not to be traded as crystal. One of the examples described in rather peculiar Latin was, and this is the translation of course, discs for small barrels and for the eyes, and another was stones for reading. In June 1301, another regulation in better Latin made it plain that any person wishing to make glasses for the eyes for reading was allowed to do so on condition that he came to the magistrate's office to swear that he would sell that glass as glass. Venice became such an important center of spectacle making that after a while they were produced within the existing guild. Venetian spectacle makers then formed their own guild about the year 1320. From that time onwards, many references to, to spectacles can be found in documents and books. A few examples from the 14th century seem to me to be worth bringing to your notice before I project some visual evidence on their construction and use in that century and the next. Here are the details. In a moment, the slides. A bill made out in 1316 shows that a Bishop Arnold paid six Bolognese soldi for eyeglasses with a case to protect them. Six years later in Florence, a bishop died, leaving a pair of eyeglasses framed in silver gilt. Another pair bought in Florence is known only from an official complaint lodged in 1329 by a merchant from the eastern part of Tuscany. They were stolen on his way home. The first reference to spectacles by a medical writer is to be found in Guy de Choliac's treatise, Chirurgia Magna, completed in 1363. The author dealt with the treatment of failing eyesight and he advised that if other things didn't avail, then, and I quote, recourse must be had to spectacles of glass or beryl. You probably know beryl to be a semi-precious stone which may be white, though it also comes in a variety of pale colors. The derivation of this word is the Greek word berillos, and this is important because it's also the root of the Latin word berillas and of the French word besicle, used before spectacles were called in France lunettes. Furthermore, the German and Dutch names for spectacles, brilla and brill, also derive from berillos. And now, let me show you a few examples of the types of spectacles worn during the period following their invention and during the advent of printing, as well as the different kinds of people who wore them. Okay? Fine.
There are the things to explain about this portrait of Hugh de Cher. It's one of a series of portraits of leading Dominicans on the walls of a former Dominican monastery at Treviso, which is about 18 miles from Venice. It was painted by Thomasa de Mardena in 1352. As Hugh de Cher, the subject of this portrait, lived a few years beyond the age of 60, he might have been happy to wear spectacles. But he certainly never did wear them because he died in 1263, more than 20 years before they were invented. The painter had quite likely been briefed by the Dominicans that Hugh de Cher's great achievements as a theologian had been in preparing three painstaking biblical works, a Latin concordance, a series of exegetical notes, and a correctory of the Latin Vulgate. So, for the first time in any surviving painting, spectacles are used here as an attribute of learning and piety. Rivet spectacles is the term used to describe the pair worn here, and my next two slides will help you to understand why this term was used. On the left, you see an enlargement of the frescoed likeness of Hugh de Cher, and on the right is a similar pair of rivet spectacles worn by another cleric, painted more than a hundred years later by a German artist, as part of an altarpiece completed in 1466. Riveted spectacles were made of various metals and bones, and sometimes of wood. In shape, they were basically of this pattern. To improve the grip near the top of the nose, the frames were often notched. Only in the 19th century did spectacles with hinged arms to fit over the ears become commonplace in Europe. Spectacles of this riveted type can hardly have been either comfortable or practical by present-day standards, and you'll often see the reader holding them in place, as in this detail from an altarpiece at Bad Wildungen, painted in 1403, this is the earliest known example of a sitter with spectacles in any German painting. In early uh, paintings, the purpose of spectacles is very frequently for reading a book. But on this page of a manuscript made around the year 1400, and now in this city in the Pierpont Morgan Library, St. Luke, in the bottom left-hand corner, wears spectacles to write his Gospels, as you'll see more clearly in an enlargement. And here, you can just see that his spectacles are also of the riveted type. As St. Luke is, to the best of my knowledge, the first of the evangelists to have been shown wearing spectacles, it does seem right that he was much later to become the patron saint of spectacle makers as well as of artists. About 25 years later, an illuminator who was probably active at Avignon worked this portrait of St. Paul into an initial for a manuscript now in the Bibliothèque Nationale. Once more, an enlargement will help you to recognize that in this image of about 1425, St. Paul wears riveted spectacles. I am astonished by the wealth of detail which an illuminator was able to compress into such a small space. I'm also impressed, too, and it's natural when you think of it, that the illuminators must have been among the first to welcome the advent of spectacles because it obviously prolonged their active and uh, um, profitable life. But we don't have to rely solely upon miniature paintings for our knowledge of 15th century spectacles. The frames you see here were recovered during excavations made in the city of London about a dozen years ago. They came from a refuse dump 
and it's likely that they were broken and thrown away about 1440 or slightly earlier. I'll say little about them because they've been the subject of a first-rate paper by Dr. Michael Rhodes of the Museum of London, published five years ago in the Antiquaries Journal. But something you can't see in this slide is the quality of the craftsmanship applied to a single piece of bone from the forelimb of a bull. The three little holes extended the field of vision. Clearly, it would have been a very time-consuming task to fashion spectacle frames of this type from bone. But by this period, other materials were also used, such as leather, fashioned in the shape you see here, in a detail from a painting made in 1436 by Jan van Eyck. This shows the donor of the painting, a canon named Georg van der Perle. His spectacles are so close to the open page of the book in his hands that the lines of the manuscript are distorted by the lower lens. Wonderful piece of work. From this oil painting, we can't be certain whether the spectacle frame is made of leather or horn, and the exact shape of the arched bow linking the two lenses is obscured by the donor's grip. So, for the sake of clarity, I'll next show you this modern replica of the bow-bridged type of leather spectacles, which became increasingly common after the advent of printing and continued to be made until the mid-18th century. This is particularly important for some hypotheses I'll put forward later. Various techniques were used to improve the tension of the bow-shaped link between the lenses. Let's now return to authentic sources. From other illuminated manuscripts, it's clear that both riveted and leather-framed spectacles caused some inconvenience to readers, as evidenced by this miniature of St. Matthew, having a spot of trouble reading from a large folio volume, even with a help from an angel. This comes from a French manuscript of about 1420, now in the Trivolt Siana at Milan. From this enlargement, it seems that St. Matthew is struggling with a pair of riveted spectacles which are really too large to suit him. But other saints had similar problems with different kinds of frames. Here is St. Mark as depicted in the British Library's manuscript of about 1500, which Janet Backhouse has rechristened the Tiliot Hours. But if you take an even closer look, it seems that Mark is having some trouble with a loose lens and not just with keeping the frame in position. Most of the spectacles are found in medieval frescoes and miniatures are worn by saints or scholars. But one of the exceptions I've come across is this leaf from a manuscript in the Pierpont Morgan Library, written and illuminated in Bruges before the year 1403, when it was given to Jean, Duc de Berry. It contains an abridgment in Latin of some astrological treatises by the 9th century Arabic writer known as Albumazar. The bespectacled figure at the top represents the planet Mercury in his houses, in a moment you'll see him in close-up, but in case you're curious about the figures below, the one at left is Virgo, and the twin-headed figures are, of course, uh, the Gemini. Now for a closer look at the personification of Mercury, drawn in the guise of an old scholar, reading his book with the help of what appear to be riveted spectacles. Sometimes you have to look in odd corners of manuscripts in order to find spectacles on peculiar noses. Take, for example, this slightly later page from the Pierpont Morgan Library. It's from a book of ours, believed to have been written in Provence towards the middle of the 15th century. 
The main scene shows the Virgin in front of a curtain held by angels with the infant Christ in her arms. Not a sign of spectacles either there or worn by the figures in the left border. But look closely at the hair down here. Here in the bottom right corner, that hair is wearing spectacles. And you can see the curve of the frame running at a slight angle up across the top of his head. Notice one other curiosity. In between its upraised paws is a glass receptacle containing some colored liquid. Compare what you see here with this later woodcut of A Dance of Death published in Germany around 1485. The figure at the left is confronted by a bespectacled doctor holding up a glass vial similar to the one you just saw between the hare's paws. From the 1490s, spectacles crop up more often in woodcuts, and perhaps the best known is this uh, one to be found in the 1493 editions of the Nuremberg Chronicle. This woodcut appears about ten times in the Chronicle to represent medical doctors or lawyers, and once again, notice the way in which spectacles are related to reading by placing a book on the sitter's lap. Among the illustrators of the Nuremberg Chronicle was Michael Wolgemuth, an artist who was Dürer's master for a time. Around the year 1470, Wolgemuth had painted an altarpiece in which he gave St. Peter a similar pair of riveted spectacles to those shown in the woodcut uh, just on the screen. This is a particularly clear representation of riveted spectacles used by a reader, and it looks to me as though St. Peter is avoiding the discomfort of the frames nipping his nose by supporting the weight with his right hand. During the last quarter of the 15th century, artists made increasing use of spectacles to indicate undesirable characteristics. Here, Hieronymus Bosch painted this in 1475, and it's called The Conjurer. The figure on the extreme left wears spectacles, but Bosch links their use to other forms of deception which are going on in the scene. Spectacles emphasize the direction in which the man at the left is looking, but what he's actually doing is to steal the purse dangling from the waistband of the man in front of him, who in turn is deceived by the conjurer's sleight of hand. All is illusion, nothing is what it seems. Apart from connecting spectacles with knavery, spectacles began to be associated with foolery. This woodcut appeared in Sebastian Brandt's Ship of Fools, published in Baal in 1494, and was copied in later editions printed in Strasbourg. The moralizing viewpoint which gave this foolish reader his cap and bells and his whisk is that the main purpose of reading books ought to be for godly purposes. This cut condemns both aimless leafing through books and also the accumulation of unreasonably large quantities of books. This foolish reader has also got hold of an absurdly large pair of spectacles. By the end of the 15th century, another popular target for derision was the activity of moneylenders and misers, like those in this scene painted by Marinus van Ramesvela, now in Florence. Art historians think that about 60 scenes like this may have been influenced by a lost canvas, uh, a prototype, painted by Van Eyck. But I mustn't give the impression that by the end of the 15th century, spectacles were never used any longer as an attribute of piety and learning. So to end this first 
batch of slides, let me show you this magnificent likeness of St. Peter, painted by Carlo Crivelli in the last quarter of the 15th century and now in the Academia in Venice. Riveted spectacles again, resting on a magnificent saintly nose with the right kind of flared nostrils to support frames of this kind. Okay. Uh, oh, we've got everything up now, haven't we? I don't need to worry. Hmm? Uh, these two? Yeah. Okay. So, fasten your seatbelts. When I broke off to show you that group of slides, I'd reached the period about 1320 when a Venetian guild of spectacle makers had been formed. The governing body of Venice did all it could to prevent the skills of that guild from being carried beyond its territory. Each spectacle maker was allowed only two apprentices and they had to spend eight years learning and practicing their craft before they were qualified to become masters. Venetian spectacle makers were forbidden to emigrate in order to practice their skills elsewhere. If any member of the guild was rash enough to defy the law, the Council of Ten, as a last resort, would throw his nearest relatives into jail and keep them there until he returned. That might, of course, have been an incentive for certain people who were at odds with their family. <laughs> Despite these attempts to make Venice the sole source of supply for spectacles, a number of glassmakers from Murano were enticed to emigrate and practice their craft in other countries. This emigration began at much the same time as the invention of spectacles at the end of the 13th century, when new glass factories were set up in Treviso, Vicenza, Mantua, Ferrara, and Bologna. During the 14th and 15th centuries, the reputation of Muranese glassworkers stood so high that foreign rulers continued to induce them to come to their dominions. In 1392, some Muranese glassworkers brought the glass industry to Ancona, and others from Murano founded glass factories in Germany. By the advent of printing in the middle of the 15th century, craftsmen capable of grinding lenses and fitting them into spectacle frames were to be found in many European cities. But it mustn't be forgotten that until the end of the 16th century, so little was known about vision and lenses that much lower standards than those to which we're accustomed today were accepted in grinding lenses for spectacles. Nor was as much care taken in matching them to their wearer's needs. The first scientific attempt to explain the theory of lenses only appeared in a Neapolitan publication of 1593 written by Della Porta with the title De Refractioni. But a fundamental misconception about the way optical lenses worked was still held at the end of the Middle Ages. Professor Ronke summarized the prevail oh, thank you, prevailing attitude by stating the aim of the organ of sight, that the aim of the organ of sight was at that period, and this is very important, the aim was to know the truth, namely the real structure of the external world by representing to men's minds the shape, position, and color of the bodies which constitute it. This, as I mentioned earlier, was believed to happen through rays emitted from the eyes going forth to explore objects, so that truth could best be learnt by avoiding the use of mirrors, prisms, or lenses, which it was feared would alter the straight lines of the rays emitted by the eyes, and so would be bound to alter the truth of what was perceived. Difficult concept for us who understand optics, but I think not too difficult when you think of it to absorb. 
Nevertheless, at the end of the 13th century, there were literate people whose ability to continue reading as they grew older was demonstrably improved by wearing spectacles. So despite prevailing superstitions about the use, about the risks of using them to perceive objects, some older people were prepared to use spectacles to help them to decipher handwriting. This category was evidently large enough to create a market for the new invention across most of Europe, and it was to expand immensely with the advent of printing. Bibliographers have long been familiar with maps and catalogues which show precisely when and where printing was first practiced in Europe. Unfortunately, nothing comparable is yet available about spectacle-making in Europe up to the year 1500. The problems aggravated by the paucity and ambiguity of entries discovered in city or guild archives where the words used may refer either to reading lenses or to magnifying glasses or possibly to spectacles. Furthermore, the relatively few writers who have written on the subject often fail to substantiate their statements with verifiable or reliable sources. For example, in 1923, a certain Professor Moritz van Rohr spoke to the Optical Society in London and said this, In the Netherlands, Harlem, spectacles are said to have been used from the beginning of the 14th century, and, as later on, we know of a well-developed spectacle industry in the Low Countries, we may infer that it had an early beginning. Leaving aside the fact that Professor Van Rohr didn't make it clear how much later he knew of a well-developed spectacle industry in the Low Countries or what evidence he had about its existence, he based his cautious remark about spectacles having been allegedly used there from the beginning of the 14th century on a passage in a work by Alexander von Humboldt published in 1847 where a footnote contained this terse, unsubstantiated statement, quotes, Spectacles were known in Harlem since the beginning of the 14th century. Now that appeared in an extremely wide-ranging work entitled Cosmos, in which Humboldt tried to give a comprehensive physical description of the universe. Inquiries I made a year ago of the director of municipal archives in Harlem failed to reveal the name of a single spectacle maker in the city's treasurer's accounts, nor was any trace found of local laws relating to spectacle making. doesn't mean it didn't happen, only that there's no evidence. In fact, the only satisfaction I got from my efforts to uh, establish what happened in Harlem was the serendipitous delight of finding that the bindings on the London Library's two-volume set of Cosmos a work which fascinated the bookbinder T.J. Cobden Sanderson, about whose work I spoke here once, had been handsomely rebacked in quarter leather with the title, dates, and volume numbers gilt-stamped in tools cut about 1885 for Cobden Sanderson's own use at his personal bindery and later used at his Dove's bindery. He had intended to print Cosmos at the Dove's press, so I like to imagine that he, having worn loose the spines of the London Library's two-volume set, repaid a debt to Humboldt by rebacking these copies. What I've just told you combined fact and assumption to an extent I can hardly avoid in continuing my survey of spectacle-making up to the advent of printing. 
Documents in the British Public Record Office concerning goods imported from the continent through the Port of London show that 1,152 pairs of spectacles were brought into the City of London over a three-month period from July to September 1384, nearly a century before Caxton brought printing to our capital city. It's likely that the ship was under the command of a captain from the Netherlands and much of his cargo had probably been produced in that part of Europe. Some writers on optics share the view that the art of glassmaking spread during the 14th century into several European countries, notably France, the Netherlands and southern Germany. Yet even in those countries, glass from Murano was still considered to be of superior quality and it seems to have been imported into southern Germany even after glassworks had been set up there. Murano produced thicker and clearer glass which provided a more suitable substance for grinding better quality lenses though the use of thinner and cheaper glass made in Germany had the advantage that spectacles were lighter on the wearer's nose and on his purse. Outside the Venetian Republic, spectacle makers appear to have been slow to organize themselves into separate guilds. Partly for this reason, only a few details have so far come to light about the way spectacles were made and distributed during the 14th century. However, the large quantity already mentioned of spectacles brought into London in 1384 gives us an indication of the size of the market that was believed to exist at that time for these articles. Even in the 15th century, I found only one authenticated date for a city in which spectacle makers were at work before the advent of printing, and that was at Frankfurt in 1450. For London, the earliest date for a spectacle maker working is for the period 1458 to 9. Nevertheless, the incidence of spectacles in paintings and drawings and miniatures and the evidence of surviving specimens indicate that wider use was made of spectacles during the 16th century, as my second batch of slides will show. You've got over the most boring part now, so hold your horses, and we've got a fine lot of slides, then we have the canter home. Okay. Um, uh, are we on... Yes. That's fine. Spectacles must have been a boon to elderly craftsmen like the goldsmith on the left of this woodcut made in 1523. This slide was made from an article published in 1915 and I haven't been able to trace where the cut first appeared, nor have I been able to trace the source of another woodcut of a jeweller at work on a goblet with a hammer very much like those used here and which is said to be a late 15th century cut. By the start of the 16th century, if not earlier, it was possible to buy spectacles from peddlers like the one you see in this woodcut of 1516, dated at the right with the initials uh, of the artist Hans Frank. Look carefully at that basket hung from the peddler's neck and you will be able to see a pair of spectacles next to the peddler's left hand just below the rim of the basket. In the 15th century, Flemish, in the 15th century, Flemish peddlers sold spectacles for reading at the doors of Westminster Hall in London and the sale of spectacles by peddlers continued until the 18th century. 
other customers bought direct from a spectacle maker. This cut was made for the Swiss artist Jost Ammons' spirited survey of 132 crafts and trades, which was published at Frankfurt in 1568. The scene is Nuremberg, where a customer is trying out a pair while the spectacle maker looks on from behind his counter. I'll show you a close-up of this cut, and while you look at the details, here's a rough translation of the lines printed in German beneath. I quote, I make good glasses, clear and bright, which help to put old people right, from 40 up to 80 year, whose sight is worn out and unclear. The rims of horn or leather hide, the lenses mounted safe inside, through which they then see clearly through and see whate'er it is they do. Later in the 16th century, we know of a well-stocked, uh, uh, well-stocked stalls selling spectacles in the marketplace. But the scene was carefully recorded in this engraving made in 1582 from a drawing by a Flemish artist, Jan van der Straet. He became one of the most successful foreign artists at work in Italy during the 16th century, changed his name to Stradanus after going to Florence, which was already famous as a center of spectacle making. In this view, the stallholder at the left has quite a large choice to offer that bulky customer who leans on his counter. Stradanus is widely known for engravings based on his drawings. Here's one of a printing house. It's one of a pair in the Royal Library at Windsor. Both craftsmen wearing spectacles. Here you see, here you'll find them worn by the standing figure between the pillars opposite the nearest press. In a companion drawing by the same artist of engravers at work, two of them wear spectacles, one in a chair at the right, the other facing him from the end of the table in the foreground. Both these drawings must have been made between 1575 and 1590. My last two slides will show you something completely different. Those of you who know Christopher de Hamel's splendid history of illuminated manuscripts will have seen this illustration of a little Swiss breviary bound about 1400. Inside the wooden front cover, one of its owners hollowed out a place to keep a pair of bow-shaped spectacles. I cannot tell you when the binding was modified in this way, but I have one, found one reference to a record made in the year 1400 of a gilded silver plate having been made to go inside the front cover of one of the Duke of Burgundy's books so that they could be kept there, so that they, meaning spectacles, could be kept there without risk of breaking. Before I show you another much later example, notice that small hole in the center between the two sections and see how in this later example, a screw and thumb piece kept the spectacles in their recess. This binding of an edition of Virgil, published in 1719 at Amsterdam, still contains a pair of pince-nez made of whalebone. I know of one other similar conversion and indeed of others by owners who kept objects such as pistols and compasses in bindings, but that's another subject. Well, I hope the visual diversity of my second batch of slides has put you in the right frame of mind to hear more about the written evidence I've sifted out relating to the use of spectacles from the advent of printing. So, off with those and on with them. Having found so little 
written evidence about the use of spectacles before of the advent of printing, I was grateful for a reference in a letter describing Gutenberg's Bible a few months before the first printed book made its appearance. On the 12th of March, 1455, a bishop of Siena, who later became Pope Pius II, reported to his Spanish cardinal on a visit made the previous autumn to Frankfurt. Nothing he wrote has been exaggerated about that amazing man near Frankfurt, meaning, of course, Gutenberg of Mainz. He went on, I haven't seen complete copies of his Bible, but I did see parts of the text in very fine paper and proper letters which your honor could read without any trouble and without using your glasses. The word in the original is berillo, and the use of the plural form instead of the singular berillus leaves no doubt that the writer referred to spectacles and not to a reading glass. I should add that caution is always needed before accepting that a singular word means spectacles. Even the medieval mention of pairs of spectacles, both in the plural, can refer to mirrors hinged together to form a locket and not eyeglasses. Fortunately, no such ambiguity of meaning arose in dealing with five newly discovered documents published in 1976 in the journal called the Renaissance Quarterly. Professor Ilardi, whose name I already mentioned, demonstrated how much these documents added to our knowledge of spectacles and of the use of concave lenses for short-sighted readers in, the 15, in 15th century Florence and Milan. The documents include an order sent to the Duke of Milan in October 1462 to his resident ambassador in Florence for three dozen spectacles. The Duke himself didn't need them, but he wanted to satisfy requests made to him for spectacles produced in Florence, where they were said to be made far more perfectly than anywhere else in Florence, in Italy. I'm sorry, I'm tiring now. You must be tiring too. The order included a dozen needed for young people wanting to improve their distant vision for which concave lenses would have been needed. An earlier letter written to Piero Cosimo de' Medici from Ferrara in 1451 acknowledged receipt of four pairs of spectacles from Florence. One of them came with broken lenses. The recipient asked for them to be replaced with lenses suitable for near vision because three of the four pairs received had lenses suitable for distant vision. It's also instructed to find that another order sent from Milan to Florence in 1466 specified needs in five-year intervals from the ages of 30 to 70, indicating an awareness of the rate at which visual acuity drops with the onset of age. Professor Ilardi drew attention to the fact that some of the best manuscript illuminators in Europe were working in Milan in the middle of the 15th century. And some of them had also worked in France and Burgundy, where they must, in 1967, to the effect that magnifying glasses and spectacles must have been of immeasurable value both to artists and patrons in the execution and appreciation of these beautiful and intricate miniatures. This reference to an art historian reminded me of a somewhat similar remark made by the printing historian, Harry Carter, in 1969, when he expressed his belief that the improvement in lenses which came about during the latter part of the 15th century would account for some change in taste in book script and type, as well as more pleasure being taken in fine workmanship, accuracy, neatness, and detail. Carter thought it very possible that the earliest German punch cutters didn't work through magnifying glasses, nor did he know when it became the invariable practice to do so. 
he thought advances in cutting types accurately and in justifying matrices during the later 1470s may have shown the effect of the jeweler's eyeglass which a typefinder had in his pocket when it wasn't screwed in his face. Following much of the same, much the same reasoning, he believed that appreciation of what the craftsman achieved may have been due to the readers wearing better spectacles. So it would seem to be accepted by both an art historian and a printing historian that the availability of spectacles and of other optical aids played a part in raising standards of book production, first in manuscript books and later in printed books, because readers had the benefit of prolonged and sharper vision through using spectacles. After quoting the opinions of two such eminent authorities in fields outside optics, I must mention some other writers who have given more concentrated attention to the history of spectacles. Long before I became curious about the possible interaction between the availability of spectacles and the advent of printing, the subject was touched on by Professor Otto Hallauer, a Swiss doctor of medicine, who put together a fine collection on the history of spectacles, now in the Medical History Library at Bern University. In 1915, Professor Hallauer remarked in an essay on spectacles, a hundred years before and a hundred years after the invention of printing, that the spread of printing throughout many countries encouraged the desire and need to read, and that after this invention, a greater demand for spectacles must have arisen among older people. This view was later shared by Llewellyn Andrew in a paper published in 1925. Andrew had little doubt that the invention of printing had been the main cause of spectacles being more widely used. Further generalizations were made in 1934 by Dr. Elson in a presidential address to an archaeological society in England. He asserted that soon after the invention of printing, and I quote, spectacles became cheaper especially as a result of German manufacture, something, he added, on mass production lines, apparently. More recently, these earlier speculations were convincingly summarized in Richard Corson's book, published in 1967, called Fashions in Eyeglasses, a well-illustrated and attractively written book, but one which fails to cite authorities or sources for several interesting statements. All the same, I will quote one passage from Corson's book because it gives you such a good summary of received ideas on the subject. Here's the quote. Glasses were largely unnecessary so long as there were few books and little education. But then came the printing of invention, and with the books came the desire of more and more people to read them, leading, naturally, to an enormous increase in the demand for spectacles. Mass production methods were instituted to meet the demand. Prices fell drastically, and by the end of the 15th century, cheap spectacles, along with other kinds of merchandise, were distributed through peddlers. Finally, after two centuries, glasses could be bought by anyone who needed them. Tempting as it is to accept the views of Corson and others, more evidence is needed before we can safely accept generalizations about mass production and distribution methods and falling prices. We also need clear evidence that anybody who needed glasses really could afford to buy them by the end of the 15th century. It needs to be recognized that the making of spectacles requires two distinct skills. First, the ability to grind a pair of lenses, and second, the ability to mount them into a frame that will rest conveniently on the nose. 
we need to know much more about the relative costs of lenses and of frames, and we also need to know more about the standards of accuracy and comfort achieved by spectacle makers during the century after the invention of printing. Frames would, of course, have been expensive when made of precious metal by goldsmiths or silversmiths, such as I mentioned in these inventories. But a notable feature of spectacles produced between the advent of printing and the end of the 16th century is the use of leather, a fact attested by the iconographical evidence I've shown you and by the quantity of leather spectacles which have survived. Lots have been discovered particularly in German monasteries. But these aren't easy to date with any precision because leather spectacles continued in use until the middle of the 18th century. I consider it to be highly probable that the increasing use of leather for spectacle frames after the invention of printing was an important factor in reducing costs. Bovine leather was readily available in most of Western Europe, and a number of people became skilled in producing a variety of objects by what is rather misleadingly called the queer bouillie method. In modern parlance, this simply means blocking, and it's still used for making things like bicycle seats and cigar cases. At the time of the advent of printing, it was used to make leather bottles, jugs, and buckets, and it soon came into use to make both spectacle frames and cases to hold spectacles. Recently, three pairs of leather spectacle frames in the Science Museum in London were examined for me by an officer of the Leather Conservation Centre in Northampton, England, and his report confirmed that two of them were made by the queer we method. Bovine leather was certainly used for one pair and probably for two. The relatively small size of spectacle frames would have made it possible to use offcuts from skins used in making other larger objects, so reducing costs and producing an inducement to convert offcuts of leather into a marketable commodity. Finally, I invite you to consider the importance of a supply of cheap and serviceable spectacles in bringing about a reduction in the cost of producing early printed books. The most effective way of bringing down manufacturing costs would have been to reduce the quantity of paper needed for each copy. This could have been done by reducing the size of the type used for the text, but such an option could only have been safely exercised if those responsible for financing and selling books were confident of older readers being able to read smaller type without straining their eyes. While it's true that custom dictated a large size of type for such books as lectern Bibles and Psalters used in churches, I believe it's also true that most decisions on type size were strongly influenced by economic factors. By reducing the quantity of paper needed for an addition, a saving would also have been made in the costs of press work. But such an economy could only have been made safely if older readers were known to have access to suitable spectacles. Well, having now reached the end of my paper, I want to thank you all for inviting me back once again to Columbia. And even if some of you doubt the validity of some of my observations, I still believe my subject deserves attention, not least because all of us either depend already or expect to depend on the use of spectacles to read the printed word. Thank you very much.